If you speak the truth, have a foot in the stirrup. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Sea Realm Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and this is episode number 597. Growth Busters and Super Connectors, prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Friday, April 29th, 2022. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to share a conversation that I recorded at EarthX. That is a big environmental conference. It takes place in Texas most years. It didn't the past couple years for reasons that I probably don't need to expand on. But it was back up and running this year, and I was there with the Institute for Sound Public Policy, better known as the comic book Geb, or the Greater Earth Betterment Bureau. We had a booth there at EarthX, and Geb was the only thing featured. We had a nice big backdrop with imagery from Antarctica, and we had little miniatures, cut-out paper miniatures of the characters. We had three issues of the comic book for sale. And we got to talk to a lot of people about aliens, but more importantly, about the things that, um, that Geb sort of slyly talks about while also pretending to talk about ridiculous topics like aliens who don't like their jobs, so they distract themselves with food, drugs, and popular media. And right across the aisle from us, from our booth at EarthX, was a booth for Growth Busters podcast with Dave Gardner. And I got to talk to Dave quite a bit, you know, over the course of the four days of EarthX. And at one point, he and I sat down and we recorded not one, but two podcast conversations. So thanks to Dave for being there with his podcasting rig all set up. Everything that you're going to hear in this conversation between Dave and me was recorded on his equipment. And then later in the podcast, I'm going to talk to a couple of people who... They're not podcasters, but they have a new business which will be of assistance to podcasters. And, you know, from my selfish perspective, uh, most importantly, will be of assistance to me. <laughs> so that's in the latter half of the program. But first, here is my conversation with Dave Gardner of the Growth Busters podcast. You're listening to the Sea Realm podcast. C stands for consciousness. You are listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I'm here with Dave Gardner, the host of the Growth Busters Podcast. Dave, it's good to meet you. I am really excited to meet you guys. I was unaware of what you were doing, so uh, thanks for sitting down with me. It is my pleasure, and hopefully it'll be the pleasure of the people listening. Right. So we are in Dallas, Texas at EarthX. I know what brings you here, but for the sake of the audience, what brings you here? Well, I came here because uh, somebody actually talked me into it. They were really impressed with EarthX over the uh, the last several years, uh, with the pandemic years uh, excluded, and uh, they felt like uh, everybody who's anybody in the sustainability field uh, comes to EarthX these days. So I thought uh, the Growthbusters podcast is, I, I think it's a world-class podcast, but it's still a pretty well-kept secret. So I thought, well, I'm just going to come exhibit and just promote the podcast and see if I can't build listenership and at the same time record uh, interviews with people who are in attendance just to kind of get a feel for how literate people are about the state of the planet these days. So I heard you do one interview. I wasn't able to listen uh, you know, very closely, but I got a sense of the sorts of questions that you were asking. But suppose you're going to ask me some questions what sort of questions would you ask to test my literacy? Uh, to test your literacy, well, probably the number one question I would ask would be, uh, do you know what overshoot is? I do know what overshoot is. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Tell me, what is it? Overshoot is when a population increases beyond the carrying capacity of its environment and degrades the ability of the environment to support even the number that was possible in the past. Yep, that's a great answer. And if I was answering it, I would add that it's... Uh, kind of a combination of the population, you know, in the human races example, it's not just the number of people, but it's the way the people are living too. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, a population of humans living pretty simply, uh, uh, the carrying capacity of the planet would be a lot, it would support a lot more humans than if everybody on, on the planet were living in high style like we do here in North America. Are you familiar with the Georgia Guidestones? You know, I just heard about those recently <laughs> for the first time. 
So for those who are not familiar with them, they're in Georgia, and they are uh, like a granite monument, very large, a megastructure, not a megastructure, a megalith. And it kind of looks like Stonehenge, but it was created a few decades ago by a group of very wealthy yet anonymous people who are concerned about sustainability issues. And it's a list of commandments for people in the future, and it's in multiple languages. And one of the commandments is that the Earth's population, human population, shall not exceed 500 million. 500 million, wow. 500 million. That would require quite a call to get us down to that level. <laughs> well, I know one very smart gentleman who thinks 50 million is the magic number. Ooh, um, that's even harder. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of scientists uh, have arrived at a number like about 2 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I see it, uh, we have a long... Unfortunately, we have a long time before we have to worry about what the magic number is. We do know that the magic number is far fewer than the nearly 8 billion of us that there are on the planet today. So we know which direction we need to head. Um, but we also don't need to, uh, to call. Uh, mm-hmm. my, you know, what I try to explain to people is that we've, are, we've demonstrated the solution to the population pro- part of the sustainability challenge. We, we have dropped the birth rate around the world uh, in half over the last 60 years without uh, having to do anything, uh, you know, without government uh, coercion, uh, without terminating people, anything like that. We've just, uh, more and more people are making informed decisions about family size and more and more women are being educated and are finding out that there are other ways to have meaningful lives besides just you know, cranking out baby after baby after baby. So women largely have been choosing to have fewer children. And so what I think we need to do to get from 8 billion down to 2 billion or maybe even that 500 million is we just need to really uh, make sure everyone around the world knows we're in overshoot and that they know uh, that overpopulation and overconsumption are the two biggest uh, drivers of us being in overshoot. Uh, we ought to live more simply, and there's a lot of joy that comes from simplifying your life. And uh, there's a lot of joy from choosing to have a smaller family, a lot of advantages to that. And we need to celebrate the decisions that women are, and couples are already making uh, about having smaller families instead of, uh, right now, we're getting a lot of alarmism from economists and uh, big companies and policymakers are alarmed because the easiest way to grow the economy is to have more workers and consumers. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the birth rate is shrinking uh, worries them. Uh, and we need to not fall into that trap. It is the best thing that could possibly happen. We need to celebrate that and thank the young couples today who are making informed decisions to have smaller families. Yes, that makes it a little harder. Well, it makes it harder to grow the economy, but growing the economy is not what we need to be doing uh, on the planet when we're in overshoot, because it's the size of the economy and the size of the population. And if your population is contracting, your economy can contract because it just needs to be of a size that will meet the needs of the population. So smaller population, smaller economy. So I am not an ideologue. But uh, I, I do know the response or the rejoinder to those arguments. <laughs> so, for one, um, the birth rate has not fallen because people have been thinking about carrying capacity. People make economic decisions. And when you're living a rural lifestyle, children are free labor on the farm. And if you don't have any sort of government-provided retirement or an employer-provided retirement, your retirement is your children. And if you live in an environment where they're likely to die young, it just makes sense to have more of them. But when you're living in an urban environment, real estate is very expensive. Kids are not free labor. They basically become very expensive exotic pets (laughs) that live for a very long time. They come back. (laughs) Yes. So people are having fewer children because of urbanization, because it makes more financial sense for them to have fewer kids. I think that's a big part of it. I think you're right. A very small part of it is people being... uh, alerted and aware and concerned about uh, being an overshoot. But I also think a part of it is that women are discovering that they can have meaningful lives way beyond motherhood. You know, in doing the Sea Realm podcast for 17 years now, um, I've encountered a lot of people who identify strongly with an environmental identity, you know, an environmentalist identity. And they 
they tend to be rather dour about technology. But I've heard it argued, and it makes sense to me, that a lot of uh, what is empowering women to make more informed choices is what I'm holding in my hand right here, which is a smartphone, which gives them access to the internet and information that would not be available to them if they were living, say, in a rural village in India. Yeah. Uh, now, all the women in that rural village in India, they have smartphones. And I was reading, I, I can't remember where I read the interview, but I was reading an interview with somebody who was talking about this. And they mentioned that all the women in the room were gathered around and they were answering questions and they were engaging, but they always were looking down at their phones. They were in constant contact with you know, the global nervous system, which provides information to everybody everywhere. Wow, I have mixed emotions about that. Oh, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're in our phones way too much as it is. I mean, the, mm -hmm. oh, the, I agree. <laughs> yeah, the access to information is great, but, uh, but, but just exiting the, the conversation that you're with, you know, you see, sit down at, in a restaurant and people aren't having conversations. Everybody's staring at their phone and that's mm -hmm. kind of sad. Um, I have a girlfriend in the Philippines that I've never met, <laughs> but oh, I oh. talk to her every day with these devices and she's a bit younger than me. And, um, Every time I go out to eat somewhere, she wants me to take a picture of the food. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I thought you might just set the phone up there and FaceTime her the whole time, and it's almost like she was there on a date with you. Well, I'm, I'm in the other ideological camp in terms of operating systems, so no FaceTime. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we use WhatsApp. <laughs> you poor guy. <laughs> 597. Well, while we're on the topic of podcasts, how long have you been doing uh, Growth Busters? I think about five years, six years. I started it, and then I kind of stopped for a year, and then mm -hmm. some interns talked to me into starting it back up. Actually, when I first started it, I called it Paving Paradise. Hmm. Um, but then I changed the name to Growth Busters. And do you... like? How did you get started? Did you sign up with a podcasting service, or did you just build it yourself, and you, you have control of the RSS feed? No, I, uh, when I first launched, I, uh, well, I used uh, SoundCloud to, ho okay. uh, to host it. Um, but what kind of got me into it was I, um, I'm a, you know, a longtime media guy. Most of my adult life I've spent as a filmmaker. But I worked in the radio business uh, early on and kind of returned to the radio uh, in my community about five or six years ago. And uh, I decided to produce a syndicated radio series called Conversation Earth mm -hmm. uh, and discovered while I was in the middle of that that there was this thing called podcasting. I didn't even know about <laughs> it. And so Conversation Earth, while it was picked up by about 25 radio stations across the country, uh, you know, it was unnatural just to make it available as a podcast too. And I did 43 episodes and these were interviews with some of the leading thinkers, really famous people that are uh, some of the smartest people on the planet about uh, living in, in harmony with the, the planet and, and its carrying capacity. And I stopped uh, producing episodes four or five years ago uh, because as a radio, doing a radio series every week, you've got to crank out a new episode. And it was, it was killing me. But, I've done live radio and it's enjoyable, yeah. but it also requires a lot more preparation. Yeah. You know, with so the podcast, you can fix it in post. Yeah. So there's 43 great episodes of Conversation Earth out there, and they're pretty evergreen. Um, so you might want to check those out. But with Growthbusters, I can be doing more, more topical stuff and uh, a lot more freewheeling and not worry about how long it is because it doesn't have to fit the radio schedule. So... In this country, particularly since the election of Donald Trump, but I think it was, it was underway before that, we've had a really intense social polarization. Really? <laughs> yeah. And one thing that concerns me is that on Team Blue, uh, there's a lot of virtue signaling and a lot of self-aggrandizement, you know, trumpeting one's moral superiority over the knuckle-dragging red tribe. And that turns people off. And if 
if you approach environmentalism with that, you know, in that mode of hortatory scolding, it can turn people, not only people who were otherwise neutral to your message will strongly reject it. I wonder if that's a concern that you have. Oh, that's kind of a multi-part question. Take um, as long as you want. Well, first, I want to comment on the, the polarization. And, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, the conservative uh, element in the United States chose to elect a con man, you know, and, and support a con man and continue. Many of them continue to, to excuse and apologize for a con man breaking the law. It's really hard for those of us who are a little more left-leaning to just uh, to understand why you would throw all of your principles out the window just to get some policies that you want. Um, but do you think that they elected him because he's a con man? Or do you think that they elected him because he was not speaking in the mold of a sort of politics which they have come to see as being useless to them? Yeah, you know, they didn't elect him because he was a con man. They chose to overlook the fact that he was a con man because mm -hmm. of the other things that he did that addressed their, uh, their perceived needs. But, so that's one part of the answer. Um, I, you know, I was a uh, registered Republican when mm -hmm. I was younger. And I eventually, uh, mostly because I was a fiscal conservative, but I, I eventually had to renounce that affiliation just because, uh, because environmentalism seemed to be just ejected by the party in the, in the, in the quest for profits and uh, low taxes. Uh, it, it seemed like conservatives didn't want to conserve anymore. They Depends just wanted on the to, type of conservative. Like yeah. you can see, there's uh, some conservatives over there, you know, promoting preserving habitat for deer or for you know the the fowl that they like to shoot, yep. quail. Yep. Um, so I think it's the economic conservatives more so than the cultural conservatives who are you know antagonistic to environmental regulations or any slowdown in economic growth. Which brings us back to growth. Let me have you invite you to give the, say, two-minute pitch on why growth, which is touted as this un unmitigated economic benefit, why we should be skeptical of growth. Well, it's pretty hard to miss. Uh, in fact, hardly a week goes by that we don't get a new report from, uh, you know, from scientists somewhere around the planet that is reporting to us on the negative impact of just the scale of the human enterprise on the planet. You know, we're pushing species off the planet at record rates. We're, uh, you know, we're turning our climate into a very inhospitable uh, climate over, you know, over the coming decade. And we're seeing it, you know, we're seeing it now. Um, we are uh, uh, toxifying our air, land, and water, uh, fresh water crises we're seeing today. We're pumping aquifers and major rivers dry. Um, there's just an endless array of evidence that we that what we're doing today isn't going to leave a good planet for our children or our grandchildren. There's, you know, it's going to be a dead planet if we just keep on doing what we're doing. And there's lots of sci scientific evidence of that. Uh, it, it's evidence that we're in overshoot. And the Global Footprint Network, I think, does the best uh, analysis of all the data around the world every year to determine what the carrying capacity of the planet is and what our ecological footprint is, uh, whether it's uh, exceeding the carrying capacity or within. And according to their analysis, since the early 1970s, we have been asking more of the planet, demanding more of the planet, than she can sustainably provide year after year. Uh, now you would think, well, the fact that here we are, 50 years later, we're still here, so maybe it isn't so unsustainable to be in that overshoot condition. Well, the fact is we're just kind of stretching the rubber band and we're killing the planet and it's, you know, we're probably going to see, you know, really experience the negative implications over the coming decade or two. And I think in many cases we're experiencing them today. Some scientists are surprised that we were able to stay in the overshoot mode that long. Um, but anyway, uh, our impact on the planet, uh, simplified, is really the product of how many of us there are and how we're behaving. Uh, how we're behaving, the size of our economy is really the best measure of how we're behaving. So uh, the size of the global economy, is, uh, which is like 
about 100 trillion, near, near that today, and the size of the global population, very close to 8 billion today, that combination is not a good long-term strategy for having good lives on the planet. So uh, if we're in overshoot, if that's where we are today, then growing the population or growing the economy doesn't make a lot of sense. So there in, in talking about population and demographics, uh, a very important concept is the replacement fertility rate. Yep. On average, each woman needs to have 2.1 children to keep the, uh, the population stable, and most economically advanced, industrially developed countries have fallen below that, and in some cases fallen well below that. And their demographics, um, you know, over time are being sort of twisted and perverted to be very, very top-heavy, to have lots of senior citizens and, and fewer younger working people than the economy requires, and really to maintain a certain character in your society, you need young people. Old people tend to be risk-averse, uh, they tend to be conservative, they don't spend as much, you know, they're safe. a lot of them are on fixed income, so they're, you know, they're not really contributing to a consumer economy, and you know, you're welcome to push back against the notion that a consumer economy is, is of benefit, but um, how quickly, like what would you want the, the birth rate to be in a place like the United States? Well, eventually, it would be good for the birth rate to be at replacement level 2.1 mm -hmm. to have a stable population. But if you're overpopulated, but, but having a stable population isn't really a great strategy. You really want to have population contraction until you're back down to... But population contraction hurts. Oh, it does, but it doesn't hurt nearly as bad as living on a, trying to live on a dead planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the, the, the worst of all crises. And yes, you, you're right. You pointed out that uh, that we're, we're in, it's, it's a mode that's temporary. While, while birth rates are lower than 2.1, which is really good news because we really need to shrink back down as fast as we can before we kill the planet, um, that's a temporary condition. And yeah, there's going to be a temporary bubble of older, more older people, fewer younger people. And that does create some challenges to the economy, but they're pretty minor compared to the challenge of trying to have an economy on a on a dead planet and um, one of the big things is that uh, the dependency ratio a lot of the economists like to complain about that you have all these old people they're a real uh, drag on the uh, on the economy we don't have enough people to take care of them we don't have enough money to take care of them well at the same time we have fewer children and their dependents too and they are a drag on the economy they require uh, a lot of, of input they you know we have to have schools teachers uh, colleges, universities, daycare, all of that. Um, while we're in this temporary condition where there's more older people, fewer younger people, the resources that we have been while we were in growth mode devoting to the younger people, we can shift those and devote those to the older people. So that isn't as big of a uh, hurdle as the economists who are big pro-growth would, would have you believe. Um, but it's also, the main thing is it's temporary. You know, it's just something that we've got to get through uh, if we want to have good lives for our children uh, until we get to a place where we really want to stabilize. So we need to, um, the closer we could get to a fertility rate of one, if we could get to a fertility rate of one for 100 years, boom, then we could switch back to a fertility rate of two. We'd get back down to about two billion people on the planet, and that might be a sustainable number, mm -hmm. uh, depending on how we want to live. Um, but we would we would need to be dedicated to not, uh, you know, everybody couldn't have a yacht, everybody couldn't have three houses, <laughs> everybody couldn't fly across the country to see a, a hockey game or, a, or go to a wedding or something like that. They'd have to live a little bit more simply. So we've got some sorting out to do to figure out what the perfect balance is between size of economy, uh, grand, how grandiose our lifestyle is, and uh, how many people we should embrace living on the planet at one time. Now, I'm reading your your name tag, it says Growth Busters, Dave Gardner, filmmaker. And um, you're, you're not young enough for podcasting to have defined your career. True, yeah. <laughs> so tell me more about your, your efforts outside of podcasting. And in particular, I'm interested in the filmmaker part. Well, what got me into Growth Busters was I decided, uh, you know, I was a professional filmmaker uh, all my adult life, and most of it I spent 
working for the evil empire. I was making propaganda films for oil companies, chemical companies, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, multi-level marketing schemes. So you're doing your penance now. Yeah, I, I learned the art of spin, and I you know, and I didn't ask any questions because I wanted to be a good provider. I wanted, I was chasing the American dream. I wanted a trophy house. Uh, that was my idea of a, a idea of success. So I spent thirty plus years doing that. Um, but eventually, for, somehow, I got back in connection with my uh, conservation ethic and uh, and started looking at what we were doing and what the impact was, and decided, you know what, we're cre we're creating a hellstorm here. Uh, I'm going to use my filmmaking skills to alert the world and. Uh, start helping to shift our culture away from chasing more uh, year after year. So I uh, started a nonprofit and researched and produced a documentary called Growth Busters Hooked on Growth. Um, premiered in 2011. And after doing that, I just couldn't go back to working for Fortune 500 companies. So I kind of took a vow of poverty and I've been doing public, public speaking, media interviews, talking to college classes, creating short films, doing everything I could to try to make the subject uh, interesting and get the attention of as many people as possible that, hey, growth isn't uh, everything it's cracked up to be. And so I've been doing that for well over a decade with very little to show for it. I don't think that the world has changed very much, sadly. Um, but um, Do you feel any regret about having spent the time and the effort without any noticeable impact? No, because it's a you know it's a meaningful life. I I wake up every day, you know I kind of joke about that with my with my wife. But I wake up every day with a planet to save. I mean it's easy <laughs> to get out of bed. I'm really motivated to do it. Uh, it's it's looking like uh, I'm you know who am I to you know I'm just making a tiny difference. I would love it if uh, tomorrow you know Paul Ehrlich after he wrote the Population Bomb, he was invited onto the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and he ended up doing twenty some episodes with Johnny Carson and he got attention and for a while people were concerned about overpopulation. I would love to have that kind of opportunity but I don't think I'm as uh, <laughs> interesting a character as Paul Ehrlich so I don't think I'm going to be invited to be on uh, uh, Stephen Colbert or anything like that. But I keep waiting for a, you know, a New York Times feature or something to uh, catapult the subject you know, into the uh, national conversation. Do you know who Julian Simon is? Oh, yeah. Okay, so Plus, you, know, you yep. know about the bet. Yep. Would you recount the bet? Well, let's see. So sometime, I don't know, in the few years after the population bomb was published, Julian Simon, who was a business uh, professor, I've forgotten what uh, college or university he was at, but some people call him an economist. I don't think he was technically an economist, mm -hmm. but, but he was a really the uh, kind of a, uh, a well-known growth pusher, I would call him. He really believed that economic growth and population growth were uh, were goods, and there was no downside to, to having those. I've heard him described as a panglossian. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he criticized Paul Ehrlich, and eventually in a, some conversation, they, uh, I can't remember now who, who, challenged who to that bet. I've forgotten. I don't know. Yeah. I just but know the, that the bet exists. Yeah, but they made a bet that uh, they were going to pick a, a certain uh, basket of uh, commodities, of raw resources, natural resources. Look at the price today, and what was the, was it a two-year bet or a one-year bet? Oh, I thought it was a longer time horizon than that. Might have been five. But, uh, yeah, they, they bet, you know, of course, Paul Ehrlich saying we're, we're eating up the planet with our numbers. Those prices are bound to rise. Right. Yeah. And uh, Julian Simon says, no, no, nope. economies of scale, increasing efficiency, those prices are going to fall. Right. And when the time came? That f the prices had fallen on, yeah. on enough of them. Yeah, Julian Simon really believed that innovation and that, you know, that uh, it really wasn't about the resources, that if a resource became scarce, we were smart enough that we would figure out a substitute for the resource. And so we weren't going to be in this... Uh, uh, resource scarcity hell that Paul Ehrlich had uh, had envisioned. Now it turns out that uh, you know if they had picked a slightly different time period, mm -hmm. Paul Ehrlich would have won the bet. Um, you know, there's there's a saying in Silicon Valley: "Too early is the same as wrong." <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, but anyway, it was it's a, it's an interesting story, and of course, the people who like to criticize Paul Ehrlich for uh, 
for being wrong in some of the predictions they say he made in the pop- population bomb. He was predicting uh, mass starvation in the 1980s. That um, yeah, he might know, millions he, of people would be starving to death. He might argue and say he wasn't predicting it, but it, it mm-hmm. was easy to, for it to look like that was he was predicting that. Um, uh, he he really was trying to p- portray that as a as one possible scenario, and I think he probably was as surprised as anyone that uh, um, that it didn't come to pass. Mm-hmm. And two, I have two things to say about that. One is, well, it's maybe it's great that. Uh, he warned us, and we did something about it. Of course, what what we didn't do about it was uh, stop growing the human population. We did not adopt that solution. But uh, we had the Green Revolution, which is really what made it so that people didn't starve. Uh, we didn't no longer had millions of people starving of, of hunger as a result of the Green Revolution. The unfortunate thing is that that solution, you know, have you ever heard of Severide's Law? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the the chief, leading cause. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, the, yeah. The chief source of problems is solutions. Yeah. <laughs> what looks like a good solution today is going to be a problem right. in the future. That, that will be the problem that your next innovation will be targeted at. Yeah. Up. You know, yeah. and you know, eventually you just may not be able to innovate your way out of that. And so the way we've been feeding the world, uh, that's a really big uh, driver of the climate crisis today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big driver of ocean dead zones. Uh, and it's a primary reason why it's estimated that we only have maybe 28 harvests left before most of the soil on the planet is not going to be worth a damn for growing crops. Um, so probably not a good long-term solution after all. I uh, met a young man last night who is a roboticist, and his company is building robots to work vertical farms. <laughs> So you're smiling and nodding. I would encourage you to say something about that. Well, it's just uh, techno, uh, techno optimism. Um, you know, it always reminds me of the Sorcerer's Apprentice segment mm-hmm. from that movie Fantasia, where Mickey—I think it was Mickey Mouse—was. Uh, it was Mickey Mouse. Yeah, you know, he unleashed some kind of a disaster, and uh, every he animated a broom to do his work for him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I need to go back and watch that again. But then it's it wouldn't stop. Yeah. So he took a hatchet to it and shattered it into many parts, each of which became a full broom unto itself uh-huh. and started doing way more work. Uh, and like I think fetching water from the well and dumping more and more water into the, uh, the sorcerer's lair. And so it was flooding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so every time Mickey came up with some kind of a solution, it just turned into a bigger problem. And mm-hmm. I mean, the list of great wonders of technology that have turned out to be, well, not quite so great after all, is long. I mean, um, you know, look at Teflon. Mm-hmm. Wow, Teflon skillet, non-stick skillet. Well, the chemicals that they used for that, same chemicals that they used to uh, waterproof outdoor gear. It turns out that that's now called the forever chemical, and it's causing uh, serious issues with, uh, with birth, uh, birth defects. Uh, and, and it never goes away. And it, you, I mean, you cannot find a place on the planet where that chemical doesn't exist today. And it just doesn't break down. So, so much for Teflon and, uh, and uh, Gore-Tex fabric. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thalidomide, Roundup, um, you know, uh, BPA, it was a BPA, the um, material that they used to make water bottles out of. Turns out that that was poison, poisoning us. And it just goes on and on and on. But there are success stories of things that we were doing that were harmful that we've stopped doing. Uh, CFCs. Yeah. Well, we've been talking for a good long time here. Why don't we uh, switch roles and you can do the interviewing. Okay. All right. So Dave, um, Dave Gardner of Growth Busters Podcast. It was great talking to you. Thanks very much, Camo. Camo, is that it how is, you say that's it? That's it. Yep. Not Camo. Just... Jim Kunstler calls me Camo. Okay. <laughs> of course. Uh, well, yeah, thanks for your interest, and thanks for challenging me. It's been a lot of fun. You're listening to the Sea Realm Podcast with your host, KMO. That was Dave Gardner of the Growth Busters Podcast, and you can find that at growthbusters.com. Next up, I'm going to share a conversation that I had today with Anna Haskell and Slava Borisov. And I would like to give my, my apologies and thanks to both of them They did not know when we got on a Zoom call together that we'd be recording a podcast segment. Uh, In fact, I'm gearing up to do some work with them 
they're starting a new business that already exists. The service exists. It is called Padverb. You can find it at en.padverb.com. It is a podcasting service of sorts. But uh, rather than tell you anything about it, here is a bit of the conversation that I had today with Anna and Slava. All right, next up on the podcast, I have got a couple folks here to talk about a project that I'm going to be working on in the very near future. Anna Haskell and Slava Borisov, welcome to the CROM podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, so Anna, I think you are in the, uh, the driver's seat in terms of the elevator pitch. What is this project that we're going to be working on together? So the problem that we're solving at Padverb started with my co-founder, Slava, being a very heavy user of podcasts. And what he discovered is that it's very difficult to uh, identify, to search for podcasts, to discover new podcasts. And the reason is that you really have to know the name of the podcast. So if you know the name, you can type it into Google or you can type it into Apple and you can find the right podcast. But the question is, what's next? Uh, where do we go from there? So the idea we started with was to uh, essentially label each episode of podcast content to the person rather than the podcast. So each of Padverb's episodes is labeled to at least two people in a very simple format, host and guest. Sometimes we have uh, one guest, sometimes we have two or three guests, and sometimes we even have co-hosts. But the format is very simple. Uh, we have we have people uh, who are creating this piece of podcast content. When I came to the project uh, about a year ago, my frustration with the podcast space was that uh, the interviews that I have given in the audio format were lost. I couldn't really uh, know where to find them. I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't understand how to look. So uh, what I wanted to see, I wanted to see my content all in one place in one platform, in this easy format, host and guest. So it was really uh, you know, a perfect combination, a perfect merger, where we have a problem of search and discovery from uh, you know, brought together by a listener with um, you know, a problem brought uh, together by uh, a guest, a guest of a show, a guest of a podcast interview, which was me. So we started with these two problems and where we're going now is uh, what we realize is that we're creating an amazing social graph. What we realized is that uh, the podcast interview is a very heavy degree of connection between people. Once a host and a guest have sat together for a one hour plus interview, uh, essentially that, that is going to be published. Essentially, they're very tightly connected to each other in terms of maybe their business interactions, maybe they see each other in, uh, you know, offline socially, they refer each other for business opportunities. And that means that we can really figure out who is connected to whom in the podcast interview space, and uh, also uh, create the future for people who want to, you know, brand themselves in the podcast interview space who want to uh, you know, start maybe with a small port portfolio of podcast interviews, but then get to maybe some of the uh, you know, star hosts and get interviewed by them. Uh, so we, we, we think we have something unique here where we're creating a, a social graph of people going from just a few interviews to, um, you know, to a very um, large portfolio. And really our overarching purpose in life, you know, every organization, every person has a purpose. Our purpose is to facilitate the delivery of ideas uh, to the world. And we do it in the podcast interview space. So that's uh, kind of uh, short and sweet, I hope. And I would, uh, I would let my co-founder Slava um, maybe, you know, add something or say something, uh, say something else to that. Well, uh, it was very well put, but I, I would only add that I, I personally, as a listener, I'm a big fan of Camo's C-Realm, so I wanted to listen to all of his guests at other podcasts, and I couldn't find a way to do it, so I, I decided to actually create this sort of like uh, rudimentary tool that would allow me to take a person's name and then add like uh, populate my feed with all their other interviews. 
So that's part of the story. The second part is, yes, uh, it's a graph, it's a social network, uh, but uh, we also kind of splitting it into two sort of different functions. Uh, a person could be just a listener, and that's who I was, and hopefully I'll remain so. The person can also use that graph to identify the perfect host or guest for his or her podcast or for or the opposite way, if they have a book or something and that they could be suggest themselves as, as a, so like a, a, an author could find all the hosts who are talking to guests on their topic. So that, that, that's the kind of thing that we're thinking is that there will be both a matchmaking tool and a sort of like a recommendation tool for listeners. Well, let me paraphrase my understanding of it. And you can tell me if I'm getting it right or wrong. At one level, it seems to be a utility for connecting podcast hosts with potential guests. Yes. That seems pretty obvious. Yeah. Uh, it sounded though, like there might be also an element of it of um, helping streamline the production process for the podcaster. Is that correct? That is also correct. I think we're slightly lesser, not as firm of ground uh, here. We, we're learning as we, as we go. Yes. But a produ the production process itself could also be um, sort of, I don't want to say disrupted, but you know, streamlined as you say. So I have learned, and I'm sure many other podcasters have learned this same thing as well, that it's a lot easier to be a guest than it is to be a host. And it's uh, for somebody who is a host, you know, 99 times out of 100, it is very refreshing to get a guest on somebody else's show. Mm -hmm. uh, so it seems to me that somebody who's already a successful podcaster with an audience, if they wanted to register with Padverb, that that might be um, an avenue to them being guests elsewhere, which is, you know, more Absolutely. fun and less work. Yes. Well, Absolutely. So, yeah, one of the one of the avenues that, um, and actually, this product is uh, you know currently in development. We are we are, as we said, you know, at the beginning, we're working a lot of uh, things. But one of the avenues that we are um, you know doing this through is you know, recommendation on the uh, for people uh, who have primarily been guests or ha who have primarily been hosts. The other, the other real, the other, the other way, um, you know, if you have been a host, then you should be a guest maybe on this particular show. And we are, we are scaling them, uh, these recommendations, because we are a technology firm. We um, want to create, uh, you know, technologically enabled recommendations for people to be guests or to be hosts if they have primarily done um you know, the other, if they primarily take it the other route. And for people who think they have something to say, but don't really want to start their own podcast, this would probably be a good tool for getting themselves, you know, started as being a podcast guest. Right. And actually, uh, on that topic, we, we did it, um, uh, we sort of do like a, um, uh, not a sandbox, but kind of like a, a playground for people who are just starting. You don't have to actually have RSS feeds um, uh, right away. You can just upload a file, um, you know, label your guests and you, you set to go. Like you, you, you can actually export that as a, your first podcast. So you don't have to immediately start with the whole RSS thing and hosting and choosing a, a commercial provider. You can just do it for free uh, on Padboard. And uh, you two come from a rather technical background. I'd, I'd be interested to hear more. Say, so start with Anna, because I've spoken to you at length, Slava, so nothing personal, but let's, let's go with Anna. Well, I, I'm very flattered that you think that I come from a technical background. I'm really, um, uh, you know, grateful that you say so. Um, and myself, I actually come from a business background, and I am uh, I'm learning as I go. This is a technology company. My background uh, is I'm a trader in commodities on Wall Street, really. And um, I've started um, companies in the past. Uh, I've uh, been in the online media space almost in the beginning. In, uh, back in 1999, I was part of a founding team um, of <laughs> a very, um, what became a very um, successful online media, independent news media company in Russia. Uh, that got shut down very recently, um, but it existed for 21 years. So that was my first uh, experience with online media and the internet. And um, since then, I built my career really in finance and uh, hedge funds and, you know, family offices. And uh, when this project, you know, when our other co-founder brought me this project, it seemed it was very exciting to me because, uh, you know, I did, I did start my career in online media. 
And I saw the scaling potential of this platform. I think, uh, you know, the podcast space has been, is a complete mess, is a complete disarray. And there is a room for a new entrant that will make it streamlined and uh, create really the future for podcasters. So that's, that's us. So I saw uh, a very interesting idea, a very interesting potential and uh, I jump in and I'm learning a lot from Slava who does have a technical background. So maybe he could uh, say a few words. Well, I strive to be a Renaissance man myself. Uh, so I, I did, I did go to school for computer science and math, but I'm not sure what, what my, uh, what, what the question I'm answering is like, whether, whether, you know, this background that I have, uh, had in any way kind of impinged on on this project or for example the the phrase social graph uh i may never have spoken it before just now and yet oh, it's, it's really off of both okay. of your tongues that right. sounds like tech speak to me well actually you know it's funny because uh you know i i recently um learned that the uh, the sort of cliche that exists is called uh you know six degrees of separation that actually is a fairly recent thing um it was only after well, supposedly it came from um, from a play by one uh, Hungarian playwright whose name I can't remember right now, but it's it's been documented and you know mentioned in uh, many books. Uh, but more famously, this this social scientist uh, Milgram did this experiment when he was sending small postcards to different uh, recipients, asking them to please forward this postcard if they if they think they can, um, you know, if they can think of somebody who can. Uh, delivered to the final, you know, uh, uh, recipient, and this way he sort of mapped out like the the, the United States of the 1960s, and and sort of concluded that probably the the uh, the level of connections that existed in in society, American society at that time, was around five or six. Uh, I think now nowadays the whole thing doesn't really apply because you know through LinkedIn, through Facebook, you know, Meta, sorry, uh, we're connected to many more people than we really are familiar with so i guess the the length of a typical path is got compressed to like maybe three um i'm pretty sure i can if i if i can say that i i know camo probably camo already has like a, a number of connections that are even if you're came even if you're not on facebook i know i think you're quitting facebook at some point but it, even though like your number of connections is so big that i can be pretty much uh, guaranteed that i can be in you know within a striking distance with uh, like a lot of famous people. So that's, that's nowadays it's not as, as interesting. What's interesting to me is uh, um, how do these, you know, graph properties and, and they're actually quite interesting uh, in, 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 in itself. Like you can, you can visualize it in a very beautiful way, but how do these properties actually relate to the kind of, you know, topics and ideas that are circulating. That's, that's, uh, if, if one could even like just kind of color ideas with certain, you know, colors, uh, you can maybe create something that's very, very, uh, beautiful in a, in a sort of 3d space or maybe not necessarily 3d, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I do understand that social graph is, is sort of been overused in the last 20 years, especially, you know, with the, all the social media, but, uh, there's different kinds of social graphs. And there were early experiments with, um, I remember there were some um, social scientists who were documenting, I believe it was kind of like uh, the notes of some sort of uh, society that had regular meetings in the early 20th century, Alabama or something like that. And they were putting together all these kind of connections between people that, that showed up at the same meeting and spoke on the same issues and stuff. And it also created like a certain uh, representation of historical uh, time and place and uh, a, a certain, you know, uh, segment of society so you can apply it to almost anything really i mean there's many many people who've done done almost to to like to, to like uh, to access uh the um uh the measurement of co-authorship the study of co-authorship for example you know who who had written articles uh you know two people are considered connected if they had written articles with each other the, that kind of stuff is also you know uh, results in very interesting data so, I mean, you can apply it to almost any, any sort of social activity where two people or more uh, do something. And like by doing that something, they presumably uh, generate or pass ideas around. So like that's, uh, that's pretty much the foundation of uh, all the social. Right. 
to give you just a preview, uh, what Slav is talking about is very interesting because we are, um, you know, where we are, where we're heading is really in data analytics because there's a big uh, question today um, that you know business people are asking. Um, it really, you know, it really everybody's asking is who is really connected to each other. You know, if you have twenty thousand followers on LinkedIn or you know, hundred thousand on Instagram. You know, you're not really connected to all these people. Who are the real super connector? Uh, and uh, one way to to judge that is to figure out if I know people have given interviews and to whom they have given interviews. And if you see that uh, a person has, you know, thousands of connections on LinkedIn and um, very few interviews, podcast interviews, then you know that tells you something about. Um, that person maybe the uh, they just create you know the content for uh, for for a like or for a follow, but uh, maybe it's uh, it's not a super connector. So podcast interview has become a uh, a mainstream uh, medium uh, for people to brand themselves, brand their ideas, and uh, really everybody should be giving uh, podcast interviews today. And if you're not in the space uh, as a super connector, you absolutely should be. So that's where we're going, really. We are, um, you know, creating uh, libraries of these super connectors, podcast interviews, and uh, trying to evaluate, um, you know, who, who is the real deal and uh, who just has, you know, uh, thousands of followers, but no real, um, you know, Influence. super connecting uh, possibility, capability. Yeah. Um... If I can uh, add to that, uh, that I think a good book to read, if 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 if, if somebody you know somebody's in, <laughs> curiosity is piqued by this, uh, Niall Ferguson, uh, historian, uh, Harvard, I think, uh, he wrote on the sort of, you know, the ebbs and flows of like this kind of conflict between hierarchy and network that's been going on for for many centuries actually, and sort of in his estimation, the 20th century was sort of like, especially the mid 20th century was the peak hierarchy uh, period, whereas you know uh, in other periods uh, it's it's really we're really more operating into like in in, in a more uh, in the paradigm of a network. And you know if I, if I if I may like you know kind of build a hypothesis that maybe we're more in the, uh, in Slava, the network. Before you detail the hypothesis, which yes. of Neil Ferguson's many books are you referencing? <laughs> Ooh, uh, what is the title? Um, the book title that Slava is looking for right now is The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power, From the Freemasons to Facebook by Neil Ferguson. Neil is spelled N-I-A-L-L. Just in case you're looking for it on wherever you look for books. No need to mention my former employer. All right, now back to the conversation. No, I, I, I pretty much uh, just, just wanted to recommend this book because I, I think it's, uh, it's really relevant to what we're discussing. Uh, so it's, well, I it's just a finished age. listening to the audiobook of his most recent book. It's called Doom. Ah, okay. <laughs> the Politics of Catastrophe. Huh. So you can probably guess why I was interested in that. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it, I, I actually came on. Okay, I, I know it's not flattery is getting you nowhere, but I, I think you know this podcast has been for me per, personally has been a, a platform where I discovered personally uh, a lot of the thinkers that you know I, I still think are important, regardless of you know whether or not they're right or wrong um and uh you know like it's it's uh because there's different kind of audiences that listen to you um i i actually think that you're going to fight a super connector as anna said like you're 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 like you're joining several different segments that are like maybe not necessarily even uh like each other but uh they listen to you so here we go all right well i think we should wrap it up there but i'm very much looking forward to working with the both of you and I look forward to talking to you again very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kimo. On the Sea Realm podcast, a mind that is stretched by a new experience can never go back, never go back never to go its back, old dimensions. That was Anna Haskell and Slava Borisov. And we are going to be working on a project together. What's that project? Well, in addition to connecting podcasters and podcast guests through Padverb, there's going to be a Padverb-branded podcast, and yours truly is set to be the host. So 
I'm sure you've noticed. My podcasting output has fallen off dramatically. You know, for many, many years, I put out one a week, every week, on the same day each week, Wednesday. And then that productivity started to slide, and for a time I was saying that the Seabrone podcast was a monthly podcast, but this is only the second one I've put out this year, and we're at the end of April. What's the reason for that? Well, you could say that the Sea Realm Vault is part of the reason. That's the podcast that pays the bills, and that's the one that has to take precedence, but I can't, I can't lay it all at the feet of the Vault. I have found it increasingly burdensome to play the producer's role in the podcast. You know, the Sea Realm Podcast, it's, lots of people have helped me with it, particularly with the website. But for the most part, it is a one-man band. I set up the interviews, I conduct the interviews, I edit the interviews, I, you know, assemble the shows, post them, do the cover art, write out the descriptions, and what very little publicity the, the podcast gets, you know, I'm responsible for that as well. I would really rather just be the host. I would just rather talk to people and then have somebody else particularly do the uh, the producer's role, which is to say, reach out to people, schedule conversations, and, you know, make it all happen. At that point, I would like to just be presented with a little, you know, little study packet or little dossier and say, hey, here's your next guest. Read up on this. Be ready to talk to them at such and such a time. That's my dream from podcasting. And then, you know, I just pass it off to somebody else to edit and assemble the podcast and all the other stuff, you know, the, the maintenance of the website, all of that. That is my podcasting dream, and it seems, knock wood, like it's about to come true. So the podcast will just be the Pad Verb Podcast with your host, KMO. <laughs> and once it is available, I'll announce it to folks via Twitter and Patreon and YouTube. And well, that's pretty much it for my, uh, my social media these days. Of course, the Sea uh, Realm Podcast Discussion Group on MeWe.com, which I apologize, I have not participated in that in a very long time. And maybe whoever's in control of the Friends of the Sea Realm group on Facebook can also get the word out. Uh, I remain, eh, by choice largely, persona non grata on Facebook. I, I do not participate in that social media platform. I do participate on Twitter. And I have to say, I don't like the side of me that Twitter brings out. And it's not Twitter's fault exactly, or at least not entirely, but I notice that I'm a very different person on Instagram than I am on Twitter. And that's largely because I'm speaking with images on Instagram. Images that I take with my smartphone, uh, images that I draw. And so the social media platform and the way that it is implemented does affect the interaction. You know, it, it does color the interaction and the, uh, the side of our personalities that that interaction draws out. And the, the part of me that, that comes to the surface on Twitter is aggressive, abrasive, and so I'm largely, I'm making a point, actually, to just retweet a lot of artwork on Twitter that I like. So to go and find the nasty little Bon Mots that I might drop from time to time, you know, from my own uh, curmudgeonly psyche, you'll have to surf through lots of absolutely gorgeous images by really accomplished artists. And I hope that's it's not too much of a burden for you. I have to say, I'm, you know, as, as excited as captivated by Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter as anybody is, although I haven't had a lot to say about it because it's a really partisan conversation. And like, I, I simply do not credit for an instant that Elon Musk is, is going to be any less amenable to free expression, any less responsible in the, the exercise of power than the previous administrators were. But at the same time, I realize, you know, he has financial interests, he has egoic interests, and he has not been a consistent champion of free speech, particularly among his employees. So I'm not investing, I don't believe anyway, I'm not investing undue hope in his ability to turn that platform around. It's a mess. It encourages bad behavior. And I don't see myself walking away from it anytime soon. On the off chance that you're listening to this and you don't know that I was on Twitter, <laughs> I know that it comes as a surprise to some people. My Twitter handle is K-A-Y-E-M-M-O, and it's a capital K. So that spells out K-M-O phonetically, K-A-Y-E-M-M-O. Hit me up. And if you want to go over to Podverb, 
and create a profile there. If you have ever been a guest on the Sea Realm podcast or the Sea Realm Vault podcast, uh, I'm particularly talking to people who have been on the Vault. The Vault is behind a paywall, and there it shall remain. But if you have been a guest on that podcast and you create a uh, profile at Padverb, if you would like to upload the recording of just you and me talking, not the whole podcast, but just the segment of you and me talking, I will be happy to provide you with that recording. And who knows, you might end up as a regular guest on a variety of podcasts. So if you want to do that, then just send me a link to your Padverb profile. And if you remember it, <laughs> hopefully you remember it, what episode of the Sea Realm Vault podcast you were on. All right. Well, I have uh, more recordings and tales from EarthX, which again took place last weekend at the K. Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I had a bunch of fun. Can't wait for next year. And I can't wait to share some more, some more stories and conversations from that event. So that will be on the next episode of the Seabrome Vault podcast. And as always, thank you, thank you, thank you to the subscribers to the Seabrome Vault podcast. It is your interest and your dollars. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it and not to be crass, but your dollars, which keep me podcasting. So thank you. All right, that brings us to the end of this installment of the Sea Realm Podcast. Thanks for listening. For those of you who only listen to the free podcasts, well, hopefully Padverb will uh, have my voice in your ears more often. But for the subscribers to the Sea Realm Vault podcast, thank you for your patience, and I will be talking to you quite soon. All right, I'm out. Stay well. <laughs>